Church, as I think of that, I know some of you are here and you're saying, I don't see him overall. I'm in a lot of difficulty right now. I don't see it. But I love that last part. I receive it, that my God is overall. There are things that we have to see that God has declared for us to see in a future time. There are things that we will see now. The Bible declares that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But he's also declared that all things will work together for good. And you might not visibly see that in your life. But you have to receive that God is truly overall. There is no higher name than Jesus. So we're going to bow and we're going to ask him to fill our hearts with that truth right now. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we want to declare that you are truly God over all. Lord, I love that it says over all that I know because, Lord, we have to admit that our knowledge is so limited. The things that we see dictate what we know, but, Lord, I pray that your word would dictate what we truly know. That today as we look at your word, that you would show us that you are truly sovereign over everything. That you are the one who declares the beginning from the end. You are the one who knows greater than we do. Lord, I ask by the power of your spirit, we would submit to your word today. We need you to do this work in our hearts. Lord, do it, I pray, for your glory. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. As you're getting your Bible, either turn them on or turn in them to Ephesians chapter 6. We are going to be in verses 5 through 9 today. This ends our series of the Spirit-filled relationships. If you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about wives submitting to your husbands. Then we looked at husbands loving your wives. And then last week, we looked at parents and children. Well, today, we're going to be looking at a passage looking at slaves and masters. Let us be reminded that in this Spirit-filled series, we looked at a contrast of what was originally designed and a break or a tendency of the flesh to work itself out in a certain way. So we see too often in our relationships that there is a rebellion against authority from those under authority, but then from the top there is an abuse of authority that is both wrong. Now, with our text today, there's a major problem because the first two that we saw, the husband and wives and the parents and children, those two are actually based on creation. This one is not. This one is a violation of the created worth and dignity of humanity. This is slaves and masters. And let us be reminded, this is why we preach through a book. Because on my own, I would not be preaching this passage. This is not one that I would choose, especially Memorial Day weekend This is not a fun passage, but it's in the Bible. And that's one of the benefits of going through a book is you deal with the things that you don't necessarily want to. As I studied this, many commentaries and articles I was reading were really trying to soften the reality of what this passage is saying and, let's be honest, the difficulty of reconciling this with our own history, with slavery and racism. And this is a stumbling block to many people. 
Many in the world would critique this passage in particular because it does not outright condemn slavery. In fact, it seems like he's saying it, it's okay. Why, why would Paul tell the slaves to submit to their masters? Why does he not say something like, this is evil, you need to get out of that, get rid of it? But I have to admit that there are three things, first of all, that we have to keep in mind as we come to this passage, and we just sang about it. The first thing is, is that God rules over everything, even the wickedness of man, and he does it to advance his kingdom. This is all throughout the Bible. Think of Joseph and his brothers. He is sold into slavery by his own brothers. And at the end of the ordeal, when he's finally reconciled and all the roller coaster of Joseph's life, he looks his brothers in the eyes and says, you meant this, intended this truly for evil. This was evil in your heart, and they will be required of their evilness. And then he says, but at the same token, God meant and planned that very thing for good, for the saving in that day of the world. Think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're stolen, taken from their country to Babylon as slaves. They're taken there against their will, and they serve under a king. Now, they do it faithfully, but what was the outcome of their obedience? There are people who are against them, even in their weaknesses. In their case, it was their faith in God, and both times, they're spared by God's grace. I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, if God wills that we live. They didn't know it was going to happen. There was no indication that they would be spared through the fiery furnace. Yet that's what happened. So God is sovereign over everything, even the wickedness of men, to advance his kingdom. We see that very clearly in the life of Jesus. In fact, reflecting on it in Acts chapter 4, the disciples are praying to God, and they say this, truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Jesus was wicked, and yet that was the means by which salvation would come to mankind. God uses the wickedness of men and is sovereign over the wickedness of man to advance his kingdom. Second thing we have to keep in mind is that God does require us to be subject to every human institution because he is good, not because the institution is good. This is all over as well in the New Testament. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And he concludes it with saying, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 13. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established 
by God. God is the one who set our current government in the situation it is right now. All over the world, God is the one sovereign over the governments of the world. He tells many of the prophets, I raise people up and I take them down. That's his sovereignty. And so we obey institutions because God is good, not because the institution is good. So think of this. If you're a soldier, any institution of authority, if you're a soldier, you have a commanding officer, you're subject to him. If you're a prisoner, you have a warden or a corrections officer. If you're an employee, you have a supervisor, a boss, a manager, or an executive pastor, perhaps. You're, you're a citizen. You have the police. You have a, a mayor, a governor, and on and on and on. We all are under authority. And the institution itself may not be good, but this is what the Bible reminds us God is. So even if it's unjust, the command is still submit to governing authorities. The final thing to keep in mind is that earthly circumstances should have no bearing on your obedience to God's will because we are servants of Christ. This is really what Paul is addressing in our passage today. Our earthly circumstances have no bearing on whether or not we obey God's will. None. There's no excuse that you and I can give of our earthly circumstances that would say, this is the reason why I did not obey you, God. No earthly circumstance hinders our obedience to God. Think of what he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then he asks this question, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. In other words, were you a slave when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But then he says this, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Because the one who is called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a slave, is actually free in the Lord. And likewise, the one who's free when called by the Lord, he says he's actually a slave of Christ. And you were bought with a price, so do not become bondservants simply of men. Don't be slaves only to men, because you're a slave of Christ. And then he says, so brothers, in whatever condition you were called, there remain with God. No circumstance dictates your obedience to God. None. Wherever you are, God is with you. And let me be reminding you that this is to a slave in the Roman era who has no rights, could potentially be treated like dirt and unjustly abused, and we don't like this command. I don't like this command. And it is interesting that the Bible doesn't attack slavery or seek to overthrow the system of slavery. Even though it is unjust and evil, we know this. Just historically looking at slavery, it was terrible. People try to make it seem like it was nicer than this time. You could gain your freedom if you paid a certain amount of money, but the majority of them, the 35% of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. The majority of them were prisoners of war. So think of those options. You're either dead or you're a slave. Some probably would prefer death. Others were abandoned kids that were just found on the street. They'd find them, they'd take them, they'd say, you're now my slave. And they'd raise them but they would be a slave. Others were poor people who had no means of financially supporting themselves. They would sell themselves to a rich person and say, I'm yours, whatever you need, because they have no ability to live themselves. 
And let me say that slavery is well and good in the world today. I was looking at estimates. They said about 40 million people across the world are slaves currently. Currently. In our own country, we know sex trafficking, slavery. Illegal use of immigrants for work, it's slavery. And there's many, many things that are slavery in our own country. So let's not be fooled to say that it is all good that we have abolished it. It is not abolished. But let me say this. God hates, and we'll look at this later, but God hates people who exploit the vulnerable. He hates that. But notice that in our passage, we're going to look at that, that God doesn't abolish slavery, but he attacks the very root of slavery. In other words, God changes the people who were involved in slavery. Both the slave and the master are addressed here as brothers in Christ because you can't legislate obedience. We see that in our country today with abortion. All across, there's great debate now over what in the world is going on with abortion. Some states say it's this. Some say it's gone. And people are mad about this because you can't legislate obedience in our country. You cannot do it. But God doesn't legislate it. He changes the people. And as he changes those people, he sets the work in motion of abolishing the institution. In other words, it's like he starts pulling the thread that eventually will unravel the whole system. That's what he's doing. Because he changes the people. And so we have to remember that in our circumstances, first, we belong to God and our allegiance is to him. And God asks us to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him. But every circumstance that we find ourselves in, as we'll look at today, is a context to evidence and proclaim Christ. Every circumstance is a context to evidence and proclaim Christ. Think of Paul when he's writing this letter. He's in house arrest. He's actually a prisoner himself writing this. And I love what he writes in Philippians 1. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. You see, as a result, it's become clear, as a result of him being in prison, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, there's actually many other believers that have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And he says, listen, I was free, but now I'm not. But still the gospel is going. I used to have the opportunity to do it freely. Now I'm doing it in bondage, but the gospel's still going. So later on he says, rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. And you'll look at me and you'll say, yeah, but Paul was a wacko. At least he's an extreme form of Christianity. That's totally bizarre. And I would say most Christians do see Paul as a unique kind of radical Christian. He's certainly not the norm. People don't talk like that. In fact, most people believe in our country that we can expect ease and comfort in this life. And here's the problem that we'll see in this passage. It'll rub us in a way to show that we believe that God often exists for our selfish motives. Which I would say in our country, evidence is more of what is known as the prosperity gospel. Evidence is a prosperity gospel. This is what the prosperity gospel does. It reduces the glory of the gospel to earthly betterment. So a slave would expect immediate freedom. Say, I'm following God now. This circumstance is now going to change. 
They also believe things like if you follow Christ, you will have less sickness, less poverty, less suffering. God's got good things in store for you. That's health and wealth. But here's the problem. The gift of the gospel is not earthly betterment all the time. In fact, rarely is it earthly betterment. The gift of the gospel is reconciliation with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we were enemies of his, and for some reason in his love, he chose to send Jesus to die for our sins and pay the penalty that you and I rightly deserve. And so the joy of reconciliation with God and and eternal joys and glories in heaven when he returns is what the gospel is about. And so we know and love Jesus. Nothing to do with earthly betterment per se. Again, the Bible's all over with this. It's the temporal versus the eternal. The fixing your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It is the flesh waging war against the spirit. The spirit is drawing us to God. The flesh is drawing us to earth and all the earthly things. Think of the hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Think of preachers like Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and Joyce Meyer, who actually claim to be Christians, but some might even throw in Oprah Winfrey there, a spiritual counselor who has no semblance of relationship with the Lord Jesus. It's the power of positive thinking. You don't have those realistic, or you better not have those realistic, you know, Bible-inspired thoughts like you're a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace because then you would actually have to be thankful and content for what God has given you if you believe those things. But this is what they believe, that God helps those who think well of themselves. They say things like, imagine yourself to be a winner, and someday you will be a winner. Visualize yourself in a big house or a Lexus, and one day you will find yourself with both. It's a very positive attitude towards the future, but the problem is, the future is this life. We have positive thoughts of the future. I hope you do. It's called hope. That's guaranteed. I really hope you have a positive view of the future, but their view of the future is now. Joel Osteen. I'm going to try to do a Joel Osteen impression. He says, I believe if you keep your faith, you keep your trust, you keep the right attitude, if you're grateful, he says, you'll see God open up new doors. That's what he says. And then he says, I believe that God has put gifts and talents and ability on the inside of every one of us. When you develop that and you believe in yourself and you believe that you're a person of influence and a person of purpose, I believe you can rise up out of any situation. Listen to that. If you believe in yourself and you believe you are a person of influence and a person of purpose, you can rise out of any situation. Let me ask you this. If things aren't going well or they are not changing to get better, what would they say? I would say perhaps you're missing God's will or you're doing something wrong or maybe you don't have enough faith. But is that true? The Bible declares that God has saved people and is saving people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Let me tell you, that means God is saving people from every life circumstance as well. He saves prostitutes and politicians. He saves prisoners and professionals. He saves cancer patients and counselors. He saves slaves and masters. So what does the blessed hope of the gospel look like for a prostitute, a prisoner, a cancer patient, or even a slave? What does it look like? It looks totally different if you believe the prosperity gospel. It looks really hard 
if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to remind us of what Ephesians 1 talks about. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where are those in the heavenly places? Where are they not potentially located? Right here. Every one of those blessings is your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God tells us that our life is hidden with Christ. That is why we set our mind on things above. Because the gospel changes you, not your circumstances. We are spirit-filled people, not spirit-filled circumstances. So here's the question as we, before we look at this passage. Where has God asked you to live out the gospel? Where has God asked you to live out the gospel? In other words, every context is a place that we can evidence that Christ is more important than our own earthly life. So with that in mind, let's read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. He says, Slaves, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. Now, as we've read before, you notice that there's a similar pattern here that Paul starts and addresses the one who's in a submissive role to the one in authority. So just like he addressed wives first and then husbands, he addresses children first and then parents. Now he addresses slaves first and then masters. Note how much longer it is to the slaves than the masters. But as we see there, it says do the same to them, and we'll talk about that. But he says and starts off with the only command really in the passage. And he says, obey your earthly masters. That's it. Just like Todd said last week, that's all we need to say. Just obey your masters. Children, obey your parents. We shouldn't have any other explanation. But God, by his grace, gives us an explanation. So now everything else is flowing. How do you do this and why would you do this? But notice also the fact that he adds the term earthly master. This is the same thing we saw, is that they serve under God, they're appointed by God, and they somehow are drawing out the kingdom of God and God's sovereignty on this earth. But then he says, you do this with fear and trembling. I want to note, this term is used throughout the New Testament, not in terms of men, it's always used in terms of God. So the indication is you, do, you obey them with fear and trembling of God. You don't do it out of fear and trembling for your master. In fact, the Bible says, do not fear men who can kill you and then do nothing. He says, no, I'll tell you who you're going to fear. You're going to fear the one who, after you're dead, can destroy your body in hell, your body and soul in hell. He says, that's the one that you shall fear. This is the same way that you and I are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's awe and reverence and fear of God because there is one day that you and I will stand before him, which we'll talk to. But again, he's already pointing us upward. Obey your earthly masters because God. Do it because God. 
That's the direction he's always going to go. Then he says, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. This is singular of purpose and generously. And notice he says, as you would Christ. In other words, not for humanity, again, but for God. It's the same command and reasons that he gives for wives submitting to husbands, children obeying your parents. He does the same thing every single time. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. You are serving Christ. So it doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter how just or unjust your master is because Jesus is the one you are serving. Notice in verse 6 he says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. I love this. And this applies to all of us. I think of how we do this so often. It's the danger of us needing to be noticed. You want people to think well of you. You always perform so much more work when people are watching you, right? Yes, sir. Sir, what do you need? Yeah, what do you need? Oh, thanks. Yeah, love you, boss. All right. Boy, that guy's an idiot. Once you leave, boy, that guy, oh my goodness. That, that's eye service. When you're in front of them, yeah, what do you need? Hey, how you doing? You know, it's like your uh, person who comes to your table and serves you, and all of a sudden you say something, you're like, you know, this, this meal isn't really that good. And they're like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'll take care of that. Yeah, no problem. Oh man, definitely. And then they go in the back and be like, that idiot just complained about this sandwich. I saw them. It was sitting there on the table the whole time. You kidding me? Oh man, what an idiot. Spit in that for me. Thanks. Give it back to him. Oh, man, here you go. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we just, we did nothing to it. We just give it back to you in the same way, and there you go. Tip me well. That's eye service. You're seeking simply to benefit yourself when you're seen. That's the only motivation you have. Who's here? Who am I impressing right now? Oh, okay, they're here. Yeah, okay, now I'm doing it. Think of your children. Unsupervised children is a disaster waiting to happen every time. I see it every Sunday. My kids go into this room, the courtesy room. It's not pretty afterwards. It's just cushions are everywhere. The toys are everywhere. And I go in there, and the first thing I say is, let's clean it up. Why? Because no one was here watching you. You just did whatever you wanted to. Unsupervised people sometimes go into chaos. Think of students. Your teacher leaves the classroom. What do you do? Everything you want to. There's this unfound freedom now. They're gone. (laughs) Who knows? And then the teacher walks back in and everybody just... And it's who can keep a straight face. Or it's when the teacher turns around and then they snap back around. And everybody's just like... Because that's all it is. It's eye service. You have no desire to submit to them. You have no desire to respect them. You simply do it because they're looking. Employees, if you're on a computer all day, think of this. Are you looking up sports highlights or SNL skits or music videos or try not to laugh videos? And you're doing all these things and all of a sudden your boss comes in and off. Yeah, what do you need? Yeah, just working on this report. I know, it's just taking forever. Is that what's going on? That's what he's saying. He's saying it's eye service. 
Think about the desire to be rewarded. You think of promotions and benefits. What's in it for me? Is it worth it to do this? Are people going to thank me or think well of me? Because the heart of a person who loves themselves and not the Lord Jesus is doing things to get recognition. It's eye service. That's all it is. And God knows it. God sees it. Is God gone out of that situation? Is God ever not present there? No. Because if you're doing it to God, God never leaves you. That's a scary promise. I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. That's very positive, but it's also terrifying. He's never going to leave you. Never. He's always there, and everything that we do is going to be laid bare before the eyes to him to whom we will give an account. Think of the danger of approval. This is a hard one, too. People pleasers. How often we want people to think well of us. And so many times, and this is a challenge in this passage, is that I'm not going to do something or I'm not going to say something that needs to be said because I'm afraid of the consequence. I'm afraid of upsetting the peace. I think of Paul where he says, listen, the focus of our lives is that Christ would be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. Think of saying that you should have been a people pleaser to people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just bow down. Just please them. Just do it. Why do you have to stand there? Why do you got to do that? Why do you got to say that to people? That's constantly before us. But God says, no, you obey me. Your allegiance is to me first. So this isn't just freedom for masters to do whatever they want. Slaves just do whatever they want or whatever the master tells them. There are times when you as a slave or as a servant under authority have to go against what your master is saying because it goes against your master and what he's saying. Are you willing to do that or are you going to be a people pleaser? Are you willing to stand firm in the strength of the Lord or are you going to give in to peace? Paul says this, he says, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? He says, if I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If I was trying to please men, I would be a bondservant of men. He says, no, I'm a bondservant of Christ. So I'm not pleasing men, I'm submitting to them insofar as it obeys God. So how do we obey our earthly masters? We obey them in this order. Christ first, and then them. And that's exactly what he says. He says, as bond servants of Christ, so don't be a people pleaser, don't do it for eye service, but as a bond servant or servants of Christ, you're doing the will of God from the heart. Always from the heart. How am I evidencing Christ to those around me? You can't be fearful of what might happen You do it trusting God. And there are guarantees that you and I will serve unjustly treated because of our devotion to Christ. That's guaranteed. That's what Jesus suffered. Unjustly, yet submitted himself. And then it says in verse 7 that we are to do this rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Do you see the repetition here? He's constantly saying the same things. Do it to God, not to man. Serve people out of the heart. Do it sincerely with your heart. Do it with fear and trembling. Here he says, rendering service with a good will. That good will is enthusiastically, eagerly, wholeheartedly, with zeal. You want to do this. And this verse and the next is going to push us upward to Christ. Because let's be honest. This is why we need the Spirit of God to fill us. This is why we need the Spirit of God, because you and I are tempted to work for people 
and not simply for God because I'm tempted to work for myself and not simply for God. And I have to address the fact that too often in our society we think we have to find the perfect job with instant wonderful pay and benefits and everything given to you immediately. So many people believe that you need to find a job that you enjoy and that's in your field and and is your passions or else you're forfeiting your life. That's absolutely not true. I think of this slave. What would you say to this slave? Hey, pursue your dreams. I hope he punches you right in the face. You have to enjoy your work. Okay, I don't. If I don't do my work, I'm whipped. So I don't enjoy my work because I, I, I enjoy not doing my work more. I, I'd rather not be whipped than to work. I'd rather work. And then we have this belief, though, that you, you honor God the most when you are in your dream job and, and you're, you're enthusiastic about your dream job. I don't care what dream job you have. It's work. And it is going to be times when you don't want to do it. So are you prioritizing what God prioritizes in your work? Husbands, fathers, Perhaps you need to put aside the thought of getting that perfect job and exactly what you want to do and find a job that provides for your family whether or not you like it. Maybe that's the answer. You're waiting around for that perfect job. Get a job. Because the standard of work and faithfulness to God is not whether or not you like it. Again, it is done enthusiastically for the Lord. Or maybe your enthusiasm stops when people don't care about you and your work. People don't recognize you and your work. Either way, your, your heart is tempted to not be in it. Think about people who write blogs. How many followers do I have? How many people watched my video? It, it puffs us up at times if people do. Oh, look at how many people saw that. Yeah, look at that. That's amazing. Is it worth it, though, if only a few people see it? Is it based on how many people see it? What if you live in faithful obscurity all your life. We have the privilege of filming these messages. How many countless people are serving faithfully today and no one will ever know it except the Lord Jesus? How many people in the world have far less people in their congregation? Far less people in their congregation, but they are faithfully staying true to what God has asked them to do and God sees it. And God is going to reward them richly. We have so much of this idea that if I do it and I do it well and it's my dream job, then it's going to explode and God's going to give me all of this wonderful things. That's prosperity gospel. That's not true. It is the faithfulness to God that is the very motivation because we love him, because he's amazing, whether or not anybody else recognizes it. So you might never... Have anyone follow your designing blog, but you faithfully care for the house that you have and you make it an invited home for people to come and be encouraged in Christ, and God sees that. You might never sing on The Voice. You might never sing on America's Got Talent. You might never even sing up here, but you might have a child who's scared at night and you sing to them. God sees that. That's faithfulness. Grandparents, your grandkids, your great grandkids might never even remember you. But some of you today, 
are faithfully praying for them and their souls. And God hears it and he sees it. And they might never remember you. Continue in it. Because God is the one who you are faithful to. So does it matter? Is it really worth it to do these things? Yes. How do I know this? Look at the next verse. He says, knowing. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. God always notices and rewards faithfulness to him. Nothing to do with circumstances. He's able to, he's able to pay him back whether he's slave or free. Later on, it's going to say that there is no partiality with God. It has nothing to do with your life circumstance or situation. It is the faithfulness to God that he cares about. How much do you love and want God to be known in that circumstance? That is what you will be judged by. Did you do this sincerely with your heart, with fear and trembling? Whatever it is, is that the way you did it? As you would to Christ, God will reward that. If you do it for eye service or people pleasing, I don't care what situation it's in, it is bad all the time. It is evil. It is selfishness. It will not gain you anything. The most menial task is a means to glory in Christ, is what he's saying. It destroys also the barrier between sacred and secular. You think I'm up here being rewarded by God because I'm a pastor in his church? It's a greater weight of responsibility before God. But you going home and ministering however you can to the people around you, you have just as much potential for glory and reward before Jesus Christ and his judgment seat as I do. And it doesn't matter how many people watch. It doesn't matter how many people see. God sees it 100% of the time. It's amazing. It's a motivation. It's glory. That's why Paul says, I know whom I have believed in. I'm, and I know that he's able to keep the very things that I, that I gave him. He's entr- I've entrusted it to him until that day. I know he's going to keep it for me. I know it. But there's also a sobering weight to this truth. Because too often I think that we, and I'm tempted in it as well, to base my earthly circumstances as a means of whether or not I'm going to be faithful to God. It doesn't matter. But when I go to work, he's here. When I go home, he's there. When I am sitting on the couch, he's there. When I'm alone in my room, he is there. He's always present. But notice he does say that you'll be rewarded. And the question, again, is when? Prosperity gospel would say now. Your best life now. That sounds like a good book. Maybe I should write it. Colossians 3, however, says, whatever you do, listen, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What is the inheritance? It's glory. That's what I'm guaranteed. 2 Corinthians 4 says, we do not lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. Again, that could be disease, that could be sicknesses or something. Either way, you and I are dying. He says, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self, however, is being renewed day by day. And he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Because we're not looking at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. These things are transient, soon and quickly gone. But everything else, that's eternal. That's why it's weighted, because that lasts. And so he says later on, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're here or away. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may, listen, receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So here's the question. Where has God asked you to live out the gospel? Where? Then do it faithfully. The Spirit of God is the one filling us. Again, it's the Spirit filling us, not our circumstances. The gospel changes us, not our circumstances. And now we come to masters. Again, how short it is. He simply says, masters do the same to them. What is they to do the same? Well, literally take, after obey your earthly masters, put a little line, and then everything else applies to masters. They do it with fear and trembling. They do it with a sincere heart, as they would Christ. They do it not by eye service or people pleasers. They do it as servants of Christ from their heart, service enthusiastically to the Lord, knowing that they are going to receive back. That's the same thing to them. The only difference is you are not to obey your earthly master because you are your earthly master. So you don't do that. But then he says this, stop your threatening. Again, the potential for abuse of authority. So often that was actually a set mode of motivation in the Roman Empire was pain. Your slave can work up to a certain point and then they're going to stop being self-motivated. The rest of the means is pain. You want them to be motivated more, just beat them and then they will keep going. That was the mindset. So think of what the gospel does to this. The gospel is saying, slave, don't stop too early, keep going. The master is to trust that the spirit of God is working in their heart, so he has no reason to threaten them to keep going. I have no reason to threaten you because I'm trusting you. Because think of this, they're brothers in Christ. They're brothers in Christ. Read the book of Philemon. That's exactly what he tells Onesiphorus, or Onesiphorus, whatever is, what is his name? Onesimus, that was right, the, the third time. Onesimus, he says, hey, listen, he's going to come back to you. Receive him. Don't receive him as a slave only. Receive him as a brother. And then Paul says, and receive him as you would me. Think of that. Paul's over him. He says, receive him as you would me. In other words, you're going to change the dynamic in which you treat this guy because he's your brother in Christ. Treat him right. Jesus reminds us that we are not to lord it over people like the Gentiles do. That's not the way we do it. And I was greatly convicted. I shared it last week but just about being a parent. If you have authority, husbands, if you have authority, parents, if you have authority, you're an officer, a supervisor, a CEO, anybody who's under your care, he's saying you will be accountable for how you treat those people. You'll be accountable for every one of them. I want you to think of this. It might seem like it's weighty at times because of 
I think of, I got nailed a lot of the different times. So I've got the husband one, and then I've got the, the father one, and I think, okay, so now I've got greater responsibility. And then you throw in there potentially like other responsibilities that I don't even know of. I know I'm a pastor. There's other people that I influence. I just picture this. Put yourself on a scale, and people under your care are simply on top of you. And guess what that scale is weighted more because you've got more people under your care. If you're at the top, you have the least amount of weight on the scale. If you're underneath, you've got that much more weight in the scales of God's judgment. He says, know that. He says, your master is in heaven. And he's their master too. And there's no partiality with him. He's going to judge you just like he judges them. And you're not going to be able to look at them and say, yeah, well, they didn't do very well and they didn't listen to me. He's going, no, 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 no. You are going to stand. There's no partiality with God. And as I said before, I want to express this very strongly. God hates people who exploit the vulnerable. It is always evil, always evil to exploit the vulnerable. Think, think of what he says in Psalm 7. David writes, and he calls out to God for justice. Listen to how he describes God. He says, my shield is with God. God is the one who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who displays his wrath every day. Then he says this, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Do you hear that? There's a guy who's acting unjustly to David, and David says, God, vindicate me. Fight for me. And this is the picture he has. God goes, okay. You don't repent? I'm just sitting there on a grinding stone, grinding my sword, waiting, just looking at you. Mm -hmm. This is for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he says, oh, you don't like that picture? How about this one? I got a bow. I'm pulling it down and I'm stringing my bow. And look at all these arrows I got that come for you. Right there. You better repent. That's the picture he has. Because I'm ready to make my weapons usable against you. That's what God does for everybody who's oppressed. You think of the people across the world who are being exploited in their weakness. I think of how many families are in forced slavery. How many kids are kidnapped and forced into militias and military. How many women are being taken advantage every single day in sex slavery. God is not idle in this. He will bring full justice. Full justice. It is terrifying, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. And he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will repay. That's a sobering reality for anybody in authority. So whether you're with much authority or no authority, the Spirit of God guides you to live under the authority of Christ. And again, it's Spirit-filled faithfulness in any circumstance. I want to close with two things. One, a passage of Scripture, and then one, a story that kind of ties this together. I think of what 1 Peter 2 says, and I want to remind us that this is not something new because this is what Christ has experienced. And Peter draws on that in this passage in 1 Peter 2. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, not only to the good 
and gentle, but listen, also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? There's no credit to that. But if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he makes this statement, for to that you have been called. You've been called to suffer unjustly to God even when people act wickedly against you. You've been called to this. And then he says this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps. He committed no sin. None of us can say that. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He wasn't a people pleaser or eye service. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But listen, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That was his mindset. When he was beaten, when he had the crown of thorns put in, when he was whipped and he was put on a cross, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That's why he said nothing. Nothing. And then he says this, remember, because he's the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, that you and I would die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why he did this. But as I said, there's a story that I want to recount that really pulls this together. There were missionaries. Their names were Martin and Gracia Burnham. I don't know if you know that name, but for... I guess 18 years ago, they were missionaries that served with New Tribes Mission in the Philippines. On May 27, 2001, while celebrating their 18th wedding anniversary at a resort in the Philippines, they were taken captive by a militant group of Muslims called the Abu Sayyaf. And they had no idea that their kidnapping would last for over a year. Martin immediately saw and recognized that God was the one who placed them with these men for his purposes. These men kidnapped and were mistreating them, and they were often leaving them without food and without shelter. And in that time, Martin started reflecting on passages of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks of how to live with your enemy. And he said, I reflected on this. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. And Gratia, writing about Martin, says he lived that out over and over again. He would fix their cell phones, their, their phones so they could talk to one another. He carried their supplies, more supplies. He kept saying, what else do you need carried? What else do you need? He would talk to them. He would pray with them. He got to know them. And he saw that they were in need of grace just like he was. Gracia said, though, she said, the hardest thing for me was seeing myself for what I really was. 
She said, when everything was gone, the real me surfaced, and that I didn't even want to believe existed. She said, I saw a hateful gratia. I saw a faithless gratia. It was shocking. She said, in a time of desperation and despair, she said, I cried out for God to change me and cried out to ask God, how long is this going to last? She said, I was such a mess. I wasn't even sure that God could change me. She said, but God can do anything. And he promised to change us. And he said he would change us so much that we would start looking like Jesus. She says, isn't that how we want to live? So on the afternoon of June 7th, 2002, over a year since their kidnapping, just before a military raid on the kidnappers came, the two huddled together in a hammock. They had both been contemplating that by this time there was no way they were going to make it out alive. So Martin said to Gracia, He says, the Bible says to serve the Lord with gladness. So let's go out all the way. Let's serve him all the way with gladness. The two prayed in their hammock, recited scripture, and sang. And they laid down to rest. But then the rescue assault began. Bullets began to fly. One punctured Gracia's leg and three bullets went right through Martin's chest. She was eventually rescued, and he died from his wounds. She says, that was my last memory of Martin. To the very end, he served the Lord with gladness. Why do I tell you this? Because later on, years later, some of the guys who held the Burnhams hostage are now, even now, in a maximum security prison in Manila. For the rest of their lives, they're serving there. Gracia says that she's been able to reconnect with a number of them, and she said, by God's grace, four of them came to Christ. She said, the same people who they had marched with in the jungle, and one of these guys had over 20 counts of murder. She says this, while I know, or had I known, that we, while we were going through our hard year in the jungle, that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience. She says, the days would have been easier to bear. She says, I can kick myself now and say, would I not have been enough? Would it not have been enough to trust the good God with all the days of my life? Would it not have been enough to know God is good instead of living in my circumstances? And she says, God puts people through hard trials not to crush us, but to use us to do a good work. She says, there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And seed planting isn't always fun, and it's certainly never easy, but it's always good Because God is good. And she said, the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. She said, others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God is almighty, and he can do anything. God can use anything. She said, I really believe that. Maybe the length of our captivity and Martin's death is exactly what it took for the seeds to work in their hearts. I remember hearing that as a college student at Cedarville. Less than a year After these events happened, she shared her testimony. And then I was following her, finding out that some of these guys got saved. Let me tell you, the kingdom of God is amazing. Because the king is amazing. And he is the one we serve. And so as you go and you leave and you go to circumstances that you go, I wish this was gone. The spirit of God is in you. 
The Spirit of God can fill you and move you to glorify Christ and magnify Him in the midst of any of those circumstances. And as Marcia said, or as uh, Gracia said, I truly believe that. I believe God can use anything. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, it's so against the way I want to think. Lord, I so often want to think that, Lord, why don't you change my circumstances? Why don't you do something different? Why don't you do something that I like? And God, over and over again, you're just taking that away. Lord, and you're giving us what you promised us. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That We are to take heart in you. Lord, that you are the one who gives a peace that is beyond understanding. It's beyond circumstances. It's beyond anything that we can even understand in this life. And that is why we need your spirit to grant us that peace. But you tell us to give all of our anxieties to you. And Lord, I'm, I'm honest. Many of my anxieties are because of the circumstances of my life. That's where my anxieties come from. So Lord, I pray that you would show yourself so good and faithful as you push in us perseverance to the end. Lord, would you turn our eyes up to you? Would you fix our eyes on heavenly things? Would you show us that so often you're just seeking faithfulness and love out of us? And Lord, we've been granted your love. We see your love and we love you because you love us. So Lord, I pray that you would magnify yourself Grant us a greater understanding of who you are. And Lord, in all things be praised because we know that you are the one who will do it for your glory. And we believe it. Amen.